Viva Las Vegas, really? Y'all hear this? We've been fighting for all right all day. How about a little Viva Las Vegas? Viva Las Vegas! Viva! Viva Las Vegas! All right, all right. You know what? Like, if I'm the CIA, I'm not, I'm not banking on that guy. No way. No way. No way. But uh, we'll talk about all that we saw there last night, which was, uh, well, quite something. Quite something. Complete with, of course, uh, the guy gets the girl and the big kiss and this, that, and the other. Um, but to, to important stuff, to lead off today's show, we got to talk about what's going on here with NATO. We got to talk about what the Democrats are doing because they're in total panic mode. They're absolutely freaking out. They think that Donald Trump's going to win now. He may well. But now they're trying to put provisions into their bill to fund Ukraine that would make it impossible for Donald Trump to back out of that funding. I'm sorry. Like, when, when did the American people get the say? Or not get to say, I should say. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Trish Regan. Good to have you here. We are sponsored, as always, in part by LegacyPMInvestments.com. Legacy Precious Metals, our wonderful friends over there. Look, if you're worried about inflation, which understandably you should be if you've seen the price of eggs lately, listen, you need to give them a ring, one 589 because they can help you diversify, diversify into things like gold, maybe silver as well. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Always welcome to use my name, of course. Okay, so Donald Trump somehow freaked everybody out again. I mean, I, he's, he's got a habit of doing this, right? As you well know, as you well know by now. Well, he said some things down in South Carolina at a rally, and he might have been joking around a little bit. He shared part of a personal conversation, which we can only assume was with Vladimir Putin. And I think you need to hear it. And then more importantly, you need to hear the response to it. Let's listen to Donald Trump in South Carolina. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. Okay. There you go. There you have it. You know, this was a sticking point for him all along. Remember how annoyed he was? He's like, I don't get it. Like, why are we, the military to the world, helping to ensure everybody else's safety? Why aren't they paying their fair share? I mean, why are we spending such a large percentage of our overall GDP, our overall economy, compared to look at Germany, look at France? Nobody's willing to take it on. And so this was part of his mantra all along, and it drove people crazy because they're like, wait a second, but we've always done this. And you know what? He was absolutely right. I'm going to just tell you right now, like, we don't, we don't have the money. Thank you very much. We are not what we once were, as they say. I think there's a country song like that. We're just not. And so with, with this enormous, enormous debt, which keeps escalating, hence my shout out to Legacy Precious Metals earlier, with this enormous debt, $34 trillion and counting, we don't have the ability to just keep funding all of these security operations all around the world. It makes sense that if you want us there, hey, you're going to chip in too. And so Donald Trump driving that point home over the weekend in South Carolina. And oh my gosh, did this ignite a you-know-what storm, shall we say, led by 
head of the uh, shift show. First of all, here's a New York Times report that came out immediately. Oh, he's favoring our enemies, favoring foes over friends. Trump threatens to upend international order. Yeah, <laughs> maybe then they'll pay. I mean, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, maybe then they will actually pay. What are they supposed to contribute? Some certain percentage of their GDP, and they're way behind, certainly in Germany and in France and other locations. So the New York Times is like, oh, my gosh, this is, you know, the end of the international world order as we know it, because he made this little comment in South Carolina. I don't think it's entirely different from some of the things we've other heard him. Uh, we've, we've otherwise heard him say it's just that it's the latest and greatest. And they're desperate. They're searching. So the, the, the star of the Schiff show, that would be Adam Schiff, the congressman from California. He was all over Twitter saying, Oh, Reagan, Reagan would be so upset. Trump bragged that he'd encourage Russia to, quote, do whatever the hell they want to our NATO allies if they didn't spend enough on defense. He's more interested in aggrandizing himself and pleasing Putin than protecting our allies. It would make Reagan, it's, it would be enough to make Reagan ill. I am not so sure about that, guys. Again, <laughs> you're, you're, inferring, you're inferring a lot, but I do think there's something to be said for Trump saying, you know what, we can't afford it. Now, maybe he's bluffing, maybe that's all it is, but I do think that the European nations started paying more in terms of whatever they had to give to NATO under the Trump administration, and I would imagine if Donald Trump were back there, then guess what? They would pay again. But Adam Schiff is mad, and then, oh, well, CNN's mad, the, the, the chief foreign correspondent over there, Christian Amanpour, who I, I do believe has lived in the United States since she was like 10 yet still speaks with this really affected, fancy, fancy accent. Here is Ms. Christiane Amanpour this morning on CNN saying how bad this was. Christiane, while you're here, I need your take on Trump over the weekend and what he said about NATO and sort of the door he opened for Russia and the reaction of world leaders to that that you're hearing. You know, Poppy, it is insane. I mean, it literally is insane. In one sentence, President Trump turned the entire post-war, you know, transatlantic security doctrine on its head. He actually, after that, whatever you want to call it, propaganda coup for Putin, uh, saying that he was going to go for full defeat or only negotiate on his terms over Ukraine, uh, to then say that if he was president, he would not just, you know, not come to the defense of NATO allies, but would encourage Putin to do whatever the hell he likes. Do you know, it, it's almost unbelievable. It's an insanity to say that, because that is the existential crisis that the world faces right now. The post-World War II, you know, global security operation is based on America and its 30 other NATO allies defending each other and coming to each other's rescue and protecting and preserving democracy and security, uh, you know, in, in the West. And Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, said, you know, whoever okay, is let, president let's hang of the on United to her, States... Because I, be I may want to go back to that in just a moment, because she's not entirely thoroughly, utterly correct on that one. Um, and we have some primary documents to help prove, that, prove it. But before we do, keep in mind how agitated everybody is. I mean, Chuck Schumer, so agitated that recently he was on state news, that's what we're calling it these days, um, and, and really saying, if you don't do this, if you don't spend this money on Ukraine right now, then guess what? Your kid's going to wind up Paying the price. I mean, this is really morbid, morbid stuff. Take it away, Senator Schumer. We're at a turning point in America. 
This bill is crucial, and history will look back on it and say, did America fail itself? Why is it crucial? Well, if we don't aid uh, Ukraine, Putin will be walk all over Ukraine. We will lose the war, and we could be fighting in Eastern Europe in a NATO ally in a few years. Americans won't like that. If we don't... Yeah. No, Americans won't like that. But why are we choosing to do this? I mean, it's something that Tucker Carlson actually brought up most recently with Mike Pence. I want to say this was last summer, and it totally destroyed, incidentally, Mike Pence's aspirations to be president. I mean, sort of just in in a blip. And I don't know what was going on with Mike Pence. I don't know if he just was having a bad day. He was agitated because Tucker was hammering him on other stuff. But this was a pretty telling or just, I guess, bad moment for Mike Pence when he said effectively he didn't care. He didn't care about Americans. He cared more about Ukraine. You know what clip I'm talking about, right? You know, you know, let's watch it. January, we'll let somebody transfer some jets. I'm sorry, Mr. Vice President, have you, I know you're running for president. You are are distressed that the Ukrainians don't have enough American tanks. Every city in the United States has become much worse over the past three years. Drive around. There's not one city that's gotten better in the United States. And it's visible. Our economy has degraded. The suicide rate has jumped. Public filth and disorder and crime have exponentially increased. And yet... Your concern is that the Ukrainians, a country most people can't find on a map, who've received tens of billions of U.S. tax dollars, don't have enough tanks. I think it's a fair question to ask, like, where's the concern for the United States in that? Well, it's not my concern. (laughs) Tucker, I've heard that routine from you before, but that's not my concern. I mean, he doubled down on it. It's not my concern. I've heard that routine from you before. It's not my concern. Hey, listen, buddy, it's got to be your concern. You've got to be careful about how the people of the United States are represented, right? You're not just out there stomping for Ukraine, thank you very much. Anyway, they won $60 billion, and I want to share with you a memo that just crossed right now. J.D. Vance, he's actually flagging this one. He claims, this is the senator, J.D. Vance is claiming in a memo to his Republican colleagues that there is an impeachment time bomb buried in the bill's text in the case that Trump should try to halt funding for Ukraine while president of the United States. So in other words, this is their, their way of saying, okay, if we get this through and we get this $60 billion, it doesn't matter who's going to be president. We're going to make sure that it comes through no matter what. According to J.D. Vance, his interpretation of this is, quote, the supplemental represents an attempt by the foreign policy blob deep state to stop President Trump from pursuing his desired policy. And if he does so anyways, to provide grounds to impeach him and undermine his administration. This is, again, J.D. Vance just now, moments ago, writing in a memo calling for all Republicans to oppose this bill's passage, this bill that would allocate $60 billion to Ukraine. It's part of a larger bill overall, $95.3 billion total, includes some help for Israel as well as assistance for Palestinians in Gaza, the West Bank, and as well as funds for U.S. allies in the Indo-Pacific. So again, let me go back to his memo. Vance is contending that the foreign aid bill 
includes basically all this foreign military financing in Ukraine, as well as a Ukraine security assistance initiative from which Donald Trump will not be able to get out from under. So even if he comes into office, he's elected, he comes in and says, you know what, I don't want this war going on with Ukraine. According to J.D.'s interpretation of the bill, he's not going to have much of a choice, right? So there's this impeachment time bomb. We need to look further into that, again, with the specific language that he's citing. But if that's the case, it shows you just the level of hysteria, the level of panic right now that Donald Trump is going to do something that they don't want him to do. But here's the thing. Keep in mind that there's a lot of spin in both directions going on. And it's why it's so critical and so important to go back to what we like to call in history circles as primary sources, right? What was going on at the time some of these deals were made? What did we seem to promise to Russia? I mean, if you listen to Putin and you listen to that two hour long plus interview that Tucker Carlson just did at the Kremlin with Vladimir Putin, then what you hear from that is somebody who is really pretty perturbed, pretty annoyed pretty distressed that, in his words, the U.S. didn't follow through with its promises. In other words, as Russia sees it, as Putin sees it, when that wall came down, guess what? We were not there to then pick fights with Russia. We were not there to encroach on their border. Ukraine was going to be this territory that we didn't actually infringe upon, right, with NATO. It would be like if the Chinese suddenly showed up in Mexico, which, by the way, I kind of think they've been doing, just saying. We have our Monroe Doctrine, which is supposed to mean that we take precedence, right, in our own hemisphere. Well, Russia felt the same way. And what's fascinating is I went back and I looked. So, you know, for the the political scientists out there, George Kennan was kind of an architect uh, and, and diplomat, if you would, of all of this going on during the Cold War and helped to negotiate the, um, the, the wall coming down. So there was a piece in 1998 written by none other than Tom Friedman, who I don't know is he would actually say some of these things today, but he actually was pretty harsh on some of the efforts to encroach upon Russia's border back then. And he quotes George Kennan. This is absolutely fascinating. I want to share this with you. So first of all, the article, um, really great. I mean, 1998, New York Times, one of the best quotes in there is when Kennan says, and he's like 90 some odd years old at this point, he's talking to Tom Friedman on the phone. He said, I think it would be the beginning of a new Cold War. He's talking about if we were to move right more aggressively with NATO to protect some of those other countries like Ukraine. I think it would be the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely and it will affect their policies. What do you think is going on right now? He goes on. I think it is a tragic mistake. It shows so little understanding of Russian history and Soviet history. Of course, there is going to be a bad reaction from Russia. So George Cannon started in the State Department in the late 1920s, all right? That just gives you some perspective of his depth of knowledge, and this was sort of his expertise. Eastern Europe, let's quote a little bit more from this article, because again, it's pretty amazing to see. By the way, the title of it, for those that are interested, it's called Foreign Affairs, Now a Word from X, May 2nd, 1998, by Tom Friedman, an interview 
with George Kennan. Just amazing, right? And and it's funny because it's X and, you know, X is now on Twitter, et cetera. I got to tweet some of these things out on X. It goes on here with Kennan telling Friedman and Russia's democracy is as far advanced, if not farther, as any of these countries we've just signed up to defend from Russia. He's talking about all those Eastern Bloc countries, right? He's like, wait a second, we're signing up to defend all these guys, and that's going to really irritate Russia. This is, this is said by a guy, as I said, oh, the late 1920s. He joined the State Department in 1926. He was U.S. ambassador to Moscow in 1952, so high to the Cold War. He goes on to say, it shows so little understanding of Russian history and Soviet history. Of course, there is going to be a bad reaction from Russia. And then the NATO expanders will say that we always told you that is how the Russians are. But this is just wrong. Think about that, guys. Think about that. That's exactly what they're doing right now. They're saying, well, well, Putin was always like this. Putin was always expansionist. And this is what Kennan is predicting in 1998 when he sees that NATO is trying to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the article continues. He writes, well... Tom actually quotes him. Let me, let me share what, what Tom actually writes. He writes, one only wonders what future historians will say. Hmm. If we are lucky, they will say that NATO's expansion to Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic simply didn't matter because the vacuum it was supposed to have filled already had been filled. Only the Clinton team couldn't see it. This is Bill Clinton, right? They will say that the forces of globalization integrating Europe coupled with the new arms control agreements, proved to be so powerful that Russia, despite NATO expansion, moved ahead with democratization and westernization and was gradually drawn into the loosely unified Europe. If we are unlucky, they will say, as Mr. George Cannon predicts, that the NATO expansion set up a situation in which NATO now has to expand, either expand all the way to Russia's border, triggering a new Cold War, or stop expanding after these three new countries and create a new dividing line through Europe. So here it all is in 1998 with George Kennan, who'd been in the State Department from the, if, I mean, he must have been pretty young back then, 1926. He's 94 years old. He's speaking to the New York Times columnist Tom Friedman. And it's just really amazing. He, I mean, yeah, he's predicting the new Cold War and then predicting something even worse, even worse. Let's continue on. He, he writes, Tom Friedman does, but there is one thing future historians will surely remark upon, and that is the other poverty of imagination that characterized U.S. foreign policy in the late 1990s. They will note that one of the seminal events in this century took place between 89 and 1992. 1989 and 1992, the collapse of the Soviet Empire, which had the capability, imperial intentions, and ideology to truly threaten the entire free world. Thanks to Western resolve and the courage of Russian Democrats, that Soviet Empire collapsed without a shot, spawning a democratic Russia, setting free the former Soviet republics, and leading to unprecedented arms control agreements with the U.S. And what was America's response? It was to expand the NATO Cold War alliance against Russia and bring it closer to Russia's borders. What, because we couldn't live without a Cold War? Do we just have to have that? Because, hey, that's a lot of money, a lot of ka-ching going back and forth. When you have something like the Cold War, what are you going to do? Like the bottom falls out from under, right? All those, I'm just saying. I'm just saying it's very interesting because they're trying to tell you right now that no, 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 this was never, ever, ever, ever promised. In fact, if you do a Google search as I did, and you try and figure out, did we, the United States, promise 
Russia that we would not encroach with NATO on its borders, something which I can remember like learning about in real time. <laughs> and, and, and now it's like the, the gaslight you because when you go and search it on the internet, Harvard comes up, Brookings comes up, these fact checks come up. They're like, no, we never promised this. So I said, all right, I'm going back to the primary sources. Yeah, it looks like we did promise this. And not only did we promise this, you've got the, the architect of so, so, so much that was happening during this time, right? Who was actually the ambassador to Moscow during the Cold War saying, if you expand NATO, you are going to have a humongous problem. And that's exactly what we have right now. I mean, this is great. Friedman's pretty harsh. He writes... What was America's response? It was to expand the NATO Cold War alliance against Russia and bring it closer to Russia's borders. Yes, tell your children and your children's children that if you lived in the age of Bill Clinton and William Cohen and the age of Madeleine Albright and Sandy Berger, the age of Trent Lott and Joe Lieberman, and you were too present at the creation of the post-Cold War order, when these foreign policy titans put their heads together and produced a mouse... We are in the age of midgets, he writes. The only good news is that we got here in one piece because there was another age, one of great statesmen who had both imagination and courage, which clearly we don't have right now. And we're trying to sort of rewrite history in the process. And you say to yourself, why? Why? Is it that important that we just have an enemy, a foe out there to keep the whole spigot going and, and operational? I, you wonder. I mean, here's, here's Putin trying. He doesn't plead his case very well, which by the way, Tucker, Tucker totally admits to. He's like, I kind of expected him to be a little bit more forthcoming and lay it out. He did lay out a lot of history, like 800 years worth of history, but it's clear he really feels as though those territories should be Russia. And he does feel as though his borders were encroached upon. And it, you know, if, if you listen to what actually was going down at the time, it certainly seems that way, but let's listen to Putin. At a meeting here in the Kremlin with the outgoing president, Bill Clinton, right here in the next room, I said to him, I asked him, Bill, do you think if Russia asked to join NATO, do you think it would happen? Suddenly he said, you know, it's interesting. I think so. But in the evening, when we met for dinner, he said, you know, I've talked to my team. No, no, it's not possible now. You can ask him. I think he will watch our interview. He'll confirm it. I wouldn't have said anything like that if it hadn't happened. Okay. Were you well, sincere? It's impossible now. Would you have joined NATO? Look, I asked the question, is it possible or not? And the answer I got was no. If I was insincere in my desire to find out what the leadership position was... But if he had said yes, would you have joined NATO? If he had said yes, the process of rapprochement would have commenced, and eventually it might have happened, if we had seen some sincere wish on the other side of our partners. But apparently there was no sincere wish. There really wasn't, because there were a lot of other forces at play. And this is, you know, when we start getting worried about the system that exists, the system that is already in place, and you just elect somebody who kind of comes in as a, as a figurehead every four years, well, that, that's what Americans start to worry about. Look, I, I'm just going to tell you, there was definitely some kind of, it may not have been in writing, but there was some kind of consensus and agreement 
that we were not going to move forward towards Russia's borders. And for whatever reason, we decided that, no, we needed to have more and more of these former European, Eastern European countries in NATO, and we were going to defend them. But defend them against what exactly? And that's what you kind of need to get at. Because, hey, I mean, here he is saying he would have joined with the, the, the supposed foes, Putin would have joined NATO. I mean, well then, well, then what do you got going on, right? Then what does NATO exist for, so to speak? So they, they, for whatever reason, have encouraged this tension. And now that somebody is on the journalist stage trying to diffuse some of this detention, tension, I don't know, is Tucker's necessarily trying, per se, to diffuse it, but he's at least trying to get some of the information out because... Putin is saying effectively that he would be willing under certain circumstances to, to end this war right now. And Tucker's getting that message out, but everybody's really, really angry about it. I mean, I look at it, I've told you guys this before, as a journalist and say, but we need more information. We need all the information we can get. If he's going to sit down for two hours with Vladimir Putin, I'll take it. I know that, I know that Vlad's got his spin. I know that Joe's got his spin. I know Trump's got his spin. I know everybody has their spin, right? Like, we're all adults here. We can digest it, understanding the narrative that they're trying to pitch. But the idea that you're going to somehow hold that narrative from us, well, then I consider that pretty problematic. Highly, highly problematic. But, you know, hey, who am I? I'm just another one of Tucker's former colleagues didn't always see eye to eye with him, still don't always see eye to eye with him. But again, as a journalist, as somebody who's hungry for information, this was absolutely the right call and the right thing to do. But don't tell that to CNN or our former colleague, Chris Wallace. My gosh, he's having an absolute fit because Tucker got the interview and not him. I mean, I don't know. I mean, again, if you're just interested in information... You ought to be able to say, okay, so what? Like there, there's a bias there. Just like, you know, Chris, when you sit down with Joe Biden, there's a bias there too. Just saying, just saying. So here he is. Listen to his little spiel going off on his former Fox colleague right here. Tucker Carlson showed up in Moscow this week to interview Vladimir Putin. It turned out to be anything but an interview. Putin droned on for two hours and seven minutes while Tucker sat there like an eager puppy. Occasionally, but rarely, he got in a question like this one about the power of the deep state in Washington. It sounds like you're describing a system that's not run by the people who are elected in your telling. That's right. That's right. But more telling than what Tucker asked is what he didn't ask. Nothing about why Putin invaded a sovereign country. Nothing about targeting civilians. Nothing about Russian war crimes. A reporter can ask Putin a tough question if he wants a real interview. Why is it that so many of the people that oppose Vladimir Putin end up dead or close to it? But apparently that's not why Tucker went to Moscow. During the Cold War, gullible Westerners who spread Soviet propaganda were dismissed as useful idiots. But calling Tucker that is unfair to useful idiots. No, he's made a cynical decision to chase MAGA's affection for dictators. 
And what better way to cash in than Putin's Kremlin? Wow. Ouch. Gave himself a little pat on the back for his interview with Vladimir Putin back in 2018. I can't help but think that this was a little bit motivated by his own ego. Because, again, let's get back to this. In the spirit of all the information we can get, shouldn't we want it? Shouldn't we hear it? Shouldn't we hear everybody out and understand the bias from which they come from and leave it up to the American people and other journalists and other commentators to, to look at this with a, with a cold eye and say, okay, this is what I think. This is what I don't think. But no, apparently some of these journalists don't think that you're smart enough. You're not smart enough to look at that and be able to figure out what's what. They think that you're not smart enough to go and, and seek out all sides, that you're just going to be spoon-fed whatever Tucker Carlson tries to spoon-feed you. And by the way, he didn't really spoon-feed. If you watch his entire thing, including the clip after, we have it, by the way, behind the scenes. If you watch that, he makes it very clear. He's not trying to, you know, stump for Putin in any way, but he is trying to get information out there. I thought about it myself, and I thought, okay, well, are my own biases clouding this in some way, shape, or form? And I thought, well, you know, if MSNBC sat down with the Ayatollah, how would I feel about that? I mean, I wouldn't love it, right? But simultaneously, as a journalist, I would say, okay, it's important that, that we hear from everyone. And I may not like that side. I may not agree with that side. But I'm not going to allow my biases to interfere with what actually may be the truth. And by the way, not saying that I would agree with anything that other side is saying at all. But don't we have the right to hear it? That's really fundamentally the issue here. Well, <laughs> Tucker Carlson, he has a few things to say about Chris Wallace. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it kind of, uh, it, it goes for the jugular. Let, let me play this for you because Trump brought Chris Wallace up in an interview with Tucker and Tucker had some choice words to describe Mr. Wallace. When I debated him, I said, how come, and this was in front of, probably not a friend of yours, Chris Wallace, he was the moderator. Not a friend. I said, why did, why is it, he wants to be Mike, but he doesn't have the talent. It's one it's of the- little man. He wanted to be his father, but he didn't have the talent of his, his father was great, his father- a little fussy man. His father interviewed me in 60 minutes. <laughs> That's a more polite way of saying the other, right? He's a fussy, fussy little man. And, um... There may be some there there. As someone who has worked with both of them, let me just tell you, there's a lot of fussy men in television. <laughs> and uh, Tucker, Tucker might be um, on to just a little something. We'll leave it at that. Fussy, fussy. That, that's the way to describe it. I would also just say he's clearly annoyed and a little bit jealous and had to bring up his own interview, his great interview in 2018 with Vladimir Putin. Anyway, because of all this, and because Donald Trump has indicated that he, he may not be willing to go along with spending all this American money overseas in Ukraine, where, by the way, we've had to help fire the former head of defense in Ukraine as well as the deputy head of defense in Ukraine because they keep making off with all the money. All right? So in light of all of that, you have... Donald Trump saying, I, I, I may not sign on to this, especially if Germany and France and the rest of them aren't paying their share, and the Democrats are losing it. 
they're freaking out. They're like, this guy can't be president. But he might be president. He might be president because look at those poll numbers. I mean, all of the poll numbers show Trump succeeding in November 2024. So what are they going to do? Well, their problem has been compounded, you see, by reality. You have an 81-year-old who, look, there's 81 years old, and then there's 81-year-old Biden. And you've heard me say before, I'm not an ageist, but reality eventually sets in. And when you see so many, there was just more today of Biden out there really struggling, struggling with his thoughts, struggling to, to be on top of things. And a lot of people, I'm not a doctor, but a lot of people have pointed to potentially the early markings of a, a neurological problem. Well, we don't know what the case is, but we do know this. We do know that special counsel could not move forward prosecuting him. They said, you can't put the guy up in front of a jury. Ben Hur, who was the attorney on this one, wrote, because, and I'll quote, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury as he did during our interview of him as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Okay, this is right there in the report when they were going to move forward on charges. They're like, yeah, he was guilty. He was guilty of taking those papers, not even trying to declassify them. He knew he had them in the garage next to his Corvette. But we can't move forward on these charges because basically, he added, Ben-Hur did, that Biden is, quote, someone for whom many jurors will want to identify reasonable doubt and look, The guy's just old, and he doesn't remember much. And so what are you going to do? Dun-da-da! Bring Kamala in to the rescue, of course. This is going to work. Kamala Harris, ready for her primetime slot. In fact, she just did a big article with the Wall Street Journal. She said she's ready to serve. She's, She's ready. She's willing. She's VP. I mean, nobody likes her. Like nobody. Not even Jill and Joe Biden, I don't think. But they have good reason. You see, I never would have picked her as my VP. Not after she pulled this. Apparently, Jill Biden still has not forgiven her, is really kind of annoyed that she's saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm ready to do it, I'm ready to do it. She, she, by the way, doesn't have a shot at getting elected. I'm just going to say that. Look at all of her polling data if you really want to know how bad a politician she is. But this also shows how tone deaf she was, knowing that Biden was effectively the anointed one, he was the senior statesman, she went into that debate back in 2020 just with, with knives out. I mean, listen to her go after Joe Biden on busing. This was priceless. And now you know why Jill Biden can't stand her. Educated about the history of race in the United States. I was Williamson. Like thank you very much, Vice President, President Biden. Biden I'm gonna, we're going to get to you. Hang on. We're going to get to you. Stage. I would like to speak I, I, on the issue of race. We're going to come back to you on on this again in just a moment. Go for 30 seconds. Okay. So on the issue of race, I couldn't agree more that this is an issue that is still not being talked about truthfully and honestly. I, there is not a black man I know, be he a relative, a friend, or a co-worker who has not been the subject of some form of profiling or discrimination. Growing up, my sister and I had to deal with the neighbor who told us her parents couldn't play with us because, she, because we were black. And I will say also that, that in this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden, 
Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it is personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So I will tell you that on this subject, it cannot be an intellectual debate among Democrats. We have to take it seriously. We have to act swiftly. As Attorney General of California, I was very proud to put in place a, a requirement that all my special agents would wear body cameras and keep those cameras on. Senator Harris, thank you. Vice President Biden, you have been invoked. We are going to give you a chance to respond. Vice President Biden. It's a mischaracterization of my position across the board. I did not praise racist. That is not true, number one. Number two, if we want to have this campaign litigated on who supports civil rights and whether I did or not, I'm happy to do that. I was a public defender. I didn't become a prosecutor. I came out and I left a good law firm to become a public defender when, in fact, when, in fact, when, in fact, my city was in flames because of the, the uh, assassination of Dr. King. Number one. Now, number two, as the U.S. as excuse me, as the uh, uh, vice president of the United States, I work with a man who, in fact, we work right, very hard to see. To I'm not going to bore you with the whole shebang, but the point being that they had this mashup, and they don't really get along. Okay, and Jill Biden, the president's wife, has never forgiven Kamala for that. I'm still stunned, stunned that he chose her to be the VP. I mean, that's you know. That, that, that shows her true colors. And then you got this problem that, you know, she can't string a sentence together. How much word salad have we heard out of Kamala Harris? I think it's very important, as you have heard from so many incredible leaders, for us at every moment in time, and certainly this one, to see the moment in time in which we exist and are present and to be able to contextualize it to understand where we exist in the history and in the moment as it relates not only to the past, but the future. I mean, she's all over the place. I mean, we could just pull those clips all day long for you, right? I mean, you want to talk about neurological challenges. I think Kamala suffers some of her own, shall we say, in terms of how she's able or not able to string words together. But nope, she's ready. She's ready. She said she can take center stage. Big article in the Wall Street Journal, big exclusive interview. She's ready for it. And again, Jill Biden is not very happy about this. She actually sent a letter out via email to Democrat donors in which she really was pretty scathing on that special counsel's report about her husband. Now, you can understand she wants to defend him, but 
you know, it's gotten really hard to defend. She said, Joe is 81. That's true. This is Jill Biden, but he's 81 doing more in an hour than most people do in a day. Joe has wisdom, empathy, and vision. His age with his experience and his expertise is an incredible asset and he proves it every day. So they're going to have to double down on like age is good. Age is good. Right. She does point out that she thinks that this was a politicized attack on her husband. This is kind of like the James Comey moment, right? They're going to say that Mr. Ben-Hur was pulling a political attack, which I think he was just, you know, a lawyer saying there's no way we're going to get a jury to convict. So why are we going to bother? She writes, we should give give everyone grace. And I can't imagine someone would try to use our son's death to score political points. If you've experienced a loss like that, you know that you don't measure in years, you measure it in grief. So the concern is that he doesn't remember exactly his his son's death and the details around that. So look, they can try putting Kamala up. Good luck. I don't know what they're going to do. I really don't know what they're going to do. I think it's going to be harder than you think to get rid of Joe. He is actually in the Oval Office, and he's a little belligerent. And so they can have a whole team around him and say, you got to leave, you got to leave, you got to leave. But if he's not willing to leave, guess what? He's not going to leave. And you're just going to damage yourself further, the Democrat Party, if they start attacking him in hopes that he will walk out. I mean, if he's getting to that sort of ornery 81-year-old position where he's worked his entire life to be where he is, he's not going to just let it go, especially given his disposition, who he is, and maybe who he is right now, who he's been in the past, who he is now. So, um, yeah, go for it. Try with Kamala. But I think the reality that everybody needs to keep in mind is that on the ticket, it's going to be Trump versus Kamala because Joe Biden's probably not going to make it should he be elected. I mean, I, I hate to say things like that, but the, the mental competency is going to continue to deteriorate. So knowing that the voting public is going to say, do I vote for Kamala or do I vote for Trump? And by the way, that's really good news for the Trump camp because they'll take that trade all day long. Kamala is not really that electable. Okay, I promised we'd talk about the Super Bowl. Viva Las Vegas, baby, right? <laughs> that was uh, Travis Kelsey last night screaming at the top of his lungs after winning that big trophy. What do you think? Was this some kind of orchestrated event? I don't really think so. But um, I-, I don't know how to explain this one. Did you see his outfit? Did you guys see this outfit? He walked into the, the Super Bowl stadium dressed um, in a whole lot of flashy stuff like a a sequin suit of some kind so my advice to taylor swift right now get out while you can because when your guy's wearing more sequins than you are that's a problem combined with well this could you guys figure out what he was saying any idea what what he was saying when he was screaming at his coach andy Reid? something about put me in put me in and maybe some obscenities were in there too that's that's the word on the street anyway He's really angry. So, you know, anger management issues there between the the sparkles and the anger. I don't know. I don't know. I I don't think he's quite the catch. I think there's something just kind of off about this whole relationship. I'm not like a conspiracy theorist. I don't think that's what it was. I don't think that like it was all designed to help Biden. I think that maybe she felt that it was helpful for her career. And he's certainly realizing it's super helpful for his career to have her by the side. And the NFL is like, Yes, baby. Yes. Right. Because suddenly they're relevant in ways that they just weren't before and people kind of had it. 
with the NFL. And so all of a sudden they're getting a whole new demo. I hope Taylor's getting something out of it. I'm just saying she's a smart business person and all that because, you know, an appearance fee for someone like Taylor Swift to show up at these things and drive ratings and actually bring her young teenage girl demographic into the football arena like that. She ought to get something. Anyway, he won. um, And, uh, you know, that's amazing. And now he wants to make it three times. And that's sort of what the Viva Las Vegas was about. So what do you guys think? I mean, Joe actually had a funny tweet. I know it's not him. It's probably some intern in the social media department. But did you see this with the eyes and everything? The eyes like, oh, it's exactly how we planned it. Do we have that, Drew? I want to show I want to show all the team team members here. By the way, if you haven't signed up, try. Try signing up. You can be a team member on the Trish Regan Show. Make sure you subscribe. You hit the like. You share. All of that good stuff. It's great to have you guys here. It really is. It's uh, It was certainly an eventful weekend. I think the bottom line takeaway, though, is that Donald Trump is serious. He wants NATO to pay its share, and he's willing to walk away if they don't. This could hopefully bring some peace to the world. There we go. Just like we drew it up. And we'll leave it there. Great to see you all. Leslie, everybody, great to see you all. So many regulars now in our in our uh, team and, and in our crew. We're going to continue the conversation live on the air tomorrow. I'll see you then.